Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Andrew Young, and welcome to uh, another edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. Um, we're recording today on Saturday, the 7th of May. And as always, I'm joined by the publisher of Econ Weekly, uh, Jay Shabbat. Hello there, Jay. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, still hard to believe that we're, we're in May already this year. Uh, uh, we seem to have, uh, although having said that, this year has been one of those where it feels like we've kind of already had three years worth of news and events and uh, uh, things that we've been reporting on. Um, so maybe yeah. you should be saying, will, will things slow down for the remainder of the year? Right, right. Yeah, it's a, and, I, and I should say it's still uh, cold and wet here in New Jersey. Oh, okay. That, uh, that, that, that's not good. I, uh, I, living in the Sun Belt, um, I realize why it's called the Sun Belt. And uh, yeah, we're, we're enjoying beautiful, beautiful weather, uh, early summer, um, before it gets uncomfortably hot. So it's just very, very pleasant to be able to be out, outdoors without, uh, without roasting. Um, right. And know, as you know, I'm a, I was a longtime Florida resident, so I know about roasting, but I do, I do miss the heat right about now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, it, you know, it's coming. Um, it's going to be, it's We're just around there. the corner. Yeah. Almost there. Um, so Jay, let's, let's get on with the, with what is a kind of a real news packed week. Um, we have to start, I think with the, the macro picture, um, the, the two day fed meeting that took place this week. That's, that's kind of the center stage on this week's econ weekly. Um, maybe kind of just give us the overview of, uh, of, of what came out of that. Yep. So, so every roughly every six weeks, the Federal Reserve uh, has its uh, policy meeting where they decide what to do with interest rates. And their latest meeting was last week. So the, um, the, the big decision, everybody's watching this, the big decision really came as no surprise. The Federal Reserve said it was going to uh, lift overnight interest rates or their target for overnight interest rates. It gets a little technical, but um, basically they, uh, they're, they're making money more expensive and they did so by a half point. So overnight interest rates up by half point. And as I said, that no, no big surprises there. Now, the chairman of the Fed, uh, Jay Powell, did surprise some people by stating pretty, um, you know, sort of outright saying that the next meeting, uh, another, another half point increase is on the table for sure, no surprise there, but uh, that he would not consider in all likelihood uh, anything more. So someone asked, uh, someone from the press asked about a three quarter point rise, and he basically kind of ruled that out which uh, did surprise the market. In fact, the stock market immediately thereafter uh, increased a lot. It then the following day uh, just, you know, went in the opposite direction. Uh, but there was, um, that, that was one area of surprise. The fact that he didn't, um, that he kind of ruled out any, any more aggressive rate hike. And that was, yeah, that was, that was perceived as, as somewhat uh, dovish. Um, in, in the face of, you know, what's now very high rates of inflation. 
so that was the big decision. There were, there were some, some other news from the meeting. They said, uh, and again, nothing unexpected here, but they kind of detailed how they're going to reverse their, um, uh, their policy of what was called quantitative easing. Basically, they, um, they helped kind of grease the wheels of financial markets, so to speak, by buying a bunch of government, government-linked debt. And now they're kind of drawing that, that big stash they built up down. They're going to draw it down over the next, you know, next few months. So that was, that was another sort of highlight of the meeting. Again, nothing too unexpected with that. Uh, so here we are. We're, we're, we're in a situation where um, the cost of borrowing is going up quite a bit. And that's already starting to affect the housing market. Mortgage rates are now, you know, they were two point something. Now they're five point something. So quite a big increase. Again, you know, is five five percent really that high in the whole scheme of things? No, not if you, you know, compare it to you know the double digit levels of the 1980s or 1970s. But but still, that's that's a very big increase. That's uh, it, it's now costs a lot more money. You know, monthly mortgage payments be a lot more. So the we already see you know the housing market slowing down. Now to be clear, we're not seeing you know there are no signs of uh, you know house prices tumbling in Dallas or house prices you know. It's not like that at all yet. I mean, nobody really thinks it's going to get there. It's not going to be another, you know, 2008. There's just structural uh, reasons why the market should hold up reasonably well, but definitely slowing down. Um, you know, home sales are clearly month to month. Uh, there's there's a lot of evidence of that uh, already slowing down. So that's the housing market, which is very, you know, which is crit- critical piece of the economy. Um, and uh, of course we have, the supply side issue is still very much a problem. We have, you know, oil prices still very high. So, you know, if there's one thing to say about the economy right now, it's that uh, it the economy itself is still very, rather healthy, sitting sort of on the foundation of strong household spending that continues to persist with, you know, the job market is strong, the, a lot of savings built up from all that pandemic stimulus. And number two, so in addition to the housing, um, so the household spending being strong, number two is that the corporate sector is still very healthy. Mm-hmm. If you got those two things going, that's, you know, right there, that's, that's a really good start. So we've got, we've got that. The economy has that going for it. However, on the other hand, there's all of these headwinds, which, which we, you know, which I mentioned many of them already, the rising borrowing costs, the rising oil costs, rising food you know, inflation in general and, uh, you know, the supply chain issues. So that's, I guess, where we stand. Yes, absolutely. And I think we've mentioned before, they kind of really, it's kind of a tough job that the the, the Fed have on this because it's not a usual scenario. Um, There's a lot of talk about going into recession or a technical recession because that's what the indicators are are saying and yet as you say it's such a healthy and buoyant um you know kind of business environment at the moment um so how do you maintain that uh (laughs) and whilst kind of controlling those uh you know those pressures such as such as inflation um it's a really difficult balancing act it sure is. And there's, you'll hear all sorts of criticism now with the Fed that they fell behind. And I'm not saying that's completely unreasonable, but you do have to remember that the uncertainty levels in that job are just extremely high. I mean, remember that when 
The Federal Reserve talked about inflation being transitory most of last year. Uh, they had no idea that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and that would cause all sorts of you know additional supply chain hurdles. I mean, a lot of uh, we, you know it's hard to say exactly how much of the current inflation is rooted in supply chain distress, but it's it's a lot of it, um, for sure. Um, and there's there's no way to have known that you know oil prices would be you know, hovering above $100 right now. And they probably wouldn't have been if Russia didn't invade Ukraine. So just a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, just the same, the same thing holds going forward. So the Fed now is determined to stop inflation by uh, tightening monetary policy aggressively with these, you know, increasing interest rates. But we don't know if, uh, you know, supply chains could loosen up and, and inflation could sort of take care of itself. I mean, that is, it's maybe not a high probability outcome, but it is certainly a possibility. So, you know, I th it's just important to remember that the, the uncertainty levels are extremely high. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, the Fed isn't controlling everything that happens. So, you know, in fact, in some ways they're, they're, re they're reacting rather than shaping. And uh, I mean, you mentioned about supply, one of the supply kind of features that we speak about a lot is is uh of workers of jobs and uh was there was there um a, a jobs report um that came out or that, that the, the fed referred to in terms of what what they were seeing there yeah well there was a was a jobs report that that was published last week it actually was published after the fed meeting so the fed press conference was wednesday and then on friday two days okay. later the labor department published their April jobs report, and it was another good one. There was a gain of 428,000 jobs during the month. And uh, a lot of that was leisure and hospitality jobs coming back. Now, the leisure and hospitality workforce is still quite a bit smaller than it was pre-COVID, uh, pre still, even now. But it, it's really making big strides in coming back. And it makes sense why. I mean, Americans are going out traveling again, and they're going to hotels, they're going to restaurants. And so you can see why the hiring in that space would, uh, would have picked up. Uh, manufacturing, also some big gains. That was the second uh, largest category of job gains was in manufacturing. That's a bit of a surprise because the auto sector is still so hobbled by these missing semiconductors. Um, that output is, is you know, not nearly as much as the car makers would like, like it to be. Um, but nevertheless, uh, other manufacturers uh, continue to hire. And I think there's in manufacturing right now, and this is probably true for a lot, lot of the economy, many different parts of the economy, there's kind of a sense right now that, you know, workers are so hard to come by because the job market is so tight that let's even overhire a little bit, you know, and let's make sure even if demand has some pockets of distress. We, we'll, we'll, we're not going to fire anybody right now. We don't want to lose any workers. They're too precious. So you, you have that dynamic as well. Also more jobs, uh, more job gains in transportation, warehousing. That's been sort of a positive news story throughout the pandemic. I mean, think of, you know, Amazon warehouses and, and things like that. It's another, another good, uh, another area of a lot of job growth. Um, so really, yeah, it's still very much positive news. There were a few hints of uh, you know, mild concern in the jobs report. It did show that uh, the actual total number of workers in the workforce is actually declining, which is a bit of a surprise. 
and everyone thought that mm -hmm. everyone thought that as COVID eased and you know concerns health concerns eased that the workforce would expand. It actually shrank a little. Now you know you can never put too much stock in just one month's report. So it's uh, you know may, maybe not worthwhile to over you know overstate the fact. But uh, but there there was that. There was also labor force participate participation take down a little bit. Um, wage growth was clearly well below the inflation rates rate. So in real terms, people's incomes are actually falling. That's not good. Yeah. 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 yeah so. But, but that, that's potentially going to correct itself because it's such a tight labor market. Um, and, uh, but the wall street journal had some really good reporting at the end of the week, uh, on the back of that jobs report about that, uh, I mean, two areas they focused on. One was, you know, that that, that kind of shrinking um, um, proportion of the population which are actually seeking employment, um, not by a, not by a great deal, but it was kind of noticeable that that was, you know, that was reducing, despite the job opportunities out there. Um, and and also the other thing that they they looked at was a kind of, you know. One of the constraints, because immigration has really, really dropped off since you know the pandemic, and it was on downward trend before that, it, that certain sectors of the economy that really rely on come migrant labour. Um, so, you know, you think of agriculture. I think a lot of health services, certainly the leisure industry, Absolutely. Um, and uh, that you know the percentage there that rely on migrant labour is quite high, and that is really, really why they are suffering such such tightness in terms of just getting people to uh, to fulfil the, the demand that they have. Yeah, no, absolutely. Not even just migrant labour, but Im immigration in general. Um, it, it, no, no question. Uh, I I think the journal had a number. Was it two million fewer immigrants than there would have been if? policies had continued as they were, you know, back from 2015 or whatever, but, but yeah, that, that's an additional strain uh, to the, to the labor market for sure, to the supply of labor. Um, and that just yeah, adds to the larger, yeah, the larger supply, supply side issues that the economy faces right now. That's right. So the statistic I heard, it was, it's kind of 1% of the, of the workforce, which, you know, doesn't sound a large number, but when you look at it by sector, it's a significantly higher percentage. Right, right. It'll be a large, much, quite a bit larger than one percent in say leisure hospitality yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've mentioned this example before, but uh, I remember listening to uh, the chief executive of uh, one of the large hotel chains talking about their their property at Hilton Head. So you know, uh, kind of upscale resort area on the, on the Atlantic seaboard. Um, is it in Georgia, I guess, or it might be in the is that South Carolina, Carolina. South Carolina. And uh, he was saying that, you know, they they don't have any local employees. <laughs> Literally, they they rely almost entirely on, uh, on, 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 you know, immigrant labor. And that just totally dried up. And, you know, because there is nobody that really lives in in that relatively remote area. It's quite a drive from, say, Savannah and uh so they've always kind of manned this um, that way, and that that just dried up, and uh, it created real real challenges. You know, they were kind of having to come creative ideas of getting people temporary accommodation locally somehow, so that they could then just work and you know do all those 
those service jobs actually in their in their hotels and resorts. Right, right. Now that's yeah, that is, um, and it's even um, it's even a bigger concern up in places that are losing a lot of population. I remember being in upstate New York once in a vacation town, and I went to a gift shop or whatever, and and the the there was a teenage worker from Belarus of all places, and I, I was talking to him, and uh, yeah, he said they that's very typical, like people from all over the world um, come to a place, come to these places in, in, you know, rural, rural, like these little vacation towns, they come for, you know, two months during the summer to fill positions that would otherwise never be filled because, you know, there's, there's just, there's not enough local workers. So that's, uh, and, you know, some of that still exists, but, but a lot of that, yeah, did disappear. Yes. Yes. Um, you, so, hear, you hear about, you know, hotels having to close and, you know, restaurants and uh, because they just simply don't have the workers. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, in this kind of we already have this 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 theme of automation replacing jobs and this being a, a real crisis for um, the, the labor force. I mean, what's happening now is that automation is required for survival because it's not that it's replacing people it's it's kind of needed because there are no people <laughs> in the first place so i uh, and you see this a lot in hotels when i've stayed in hotels um the idea of kind of the daily servicing of the room is just not really there there is a lot more um that i see that they're trying to make you do yourself so it's kind of self-service you know, with many of the, um, the, 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 the things that used to kind of just involve people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably going to be here to stay, um, I think. And uh, the future might be, <laughs> the future might be best uh, recognized in Japan. In Japan, they have a, uh, a fast shrinking workforce and an aging workforce. And uh, the reason why that's, you know, Japan is considered the capital of robotics. There's just, you know, robots and automation is, is for the reason you just mentioned, they just don't have workers. And, and Japan, it's even doubly worse because they, they have always been very uh, limited with immigration. So they kind of have uh, that even extra need to uh, try to substitute human workers with robots. Yes, I, I, absolutely. It's good. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> a good. A good sign of what, what may be coming uh, here as well. I mean, but, but it's good. It encourages innovation, creativity, um, the use yeah. of automation. Um, and, and of course, yeah, I mean, to, you know, we should always point out that, uh, you know, robots can also create jobs, too. I mean, they uh, you know, that's that's a new industry in and of itself is uh, building the robots. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, that that's a lot of these jobs do require certain skills, which, uh, you know, th there's a shortage, shortage of those people as well. And, uh, you know, that's why, by the way, the, uh, you know, there's now 6 million unemployed people in the United States and 12 million open jobs. And you say, how does that even make sense? But there's that mismatch there. You know, some of those open jobs may be to build robots. And for that, you need an advanced science degree, which just not enough people have. And yeah, yes, yeah, that's it. Well, you know, there, yes, there is an accelerated evolution in the job market, I think, in terms of the skills that, that, that people need. Um, well, yeah, our economy is becoming more, you know, as, as it becomes more high tech and more, uh, more of a knowledge based economy, more and more of those jobs do require some of those higher skills. So that's a, you know, that's a policy challenge. How do you get 
more Americans, uh, you know, uh, how do you improve their skills? And, um, you know, that's def definitely a challenge. It, it is. And, and, you know, and that, yes, you're right. It is a policy thing. It's kind of looking at that whole, what's well, the feedstock. It's the education process and system and, um, and where, where training takes place, what, what is relevant training for what the economy needs mm -hmm. um, and to get people good jobs. So, so I think kind of before we leave, I suppose the, the bigger economics picture, we, we focused a lot on North America there, but I think it's worth kind of referencing, um, I think the global situation. Um, now, people obviously say, you know, America is, is really the, the prime for the global economy in, in so many ways. Um, back in the UK, we always used to have this phrase that, you know, when, when America sneezes, um, we, we catch a cold. And uh, maybe less so in terms of the global um, economy these days, but still kind of very important. But overall, in terms of globally, there are things happening um, which do affect US companies and corporations. Um, I just we we touch on those in this week's edition. Um, what what do you see as probably the you know the key things that that people should be aware of? Right, um, and you know not to really go too much into the global economic outlook, but there are a lot of uh, headwinds that are going to affect the U.S. too, for sure. So one thing that you have to keep an eye on is what's happening in China. So for the world economy now, China is. Uh, a extremely important, um, was extremely important in driving demand uh, throughout the, the global economy for much of the past 20 years. And for a lot of countries, um, a very substantial part of their economic growth depended on demand from China. And a good example of that would be, you know, some of these Southeast, Southeast Asian countries like Thailand, say, uh, they, you know, 10, 15, 20% of their economy is tourism and Chinese tourism, outbound tourism uh, was a, um, you know, was, was really a godsend for these countries. And that's, that doesn't exist right now. And will it ever come back? It's hard to say. Um, but Chinese demand is closely watched for other reasons too. And one is, you know, China has always been a big, or for the past 20 years has been a very large buyer of commodities. So if they're no longer, buying as much oil, for example, that could relieve some pressure on the oil price. It's somewhat of a surprise that, uh, that it hasn't. I mean, China's economy is struggling right now because of these COVID lockdowns and other reasons as well, which we do touch on in this week's issue, um, some challenges that the Chinese economy faces. But the fact that it's not purchasing so much oil, you'd think that would sort of put down the pressure on prices. I mean, unfortunately, there's just a lot of other things going on particularly, you know, with, with Russia and whatnot, that's uh, keeping the oil price aloft. But, uh, but yeah, China's definitely one to watch. And someone actually raised the question, I was listening to an interesting um, uh, discussion from the Carnegie Council, and it was about, you know, they asked the question, what would happen if U.S. companies were forced to withdraw from China in the same way that, they, that they've been forced to withdraw from Russia? So the situation with Russia really wasn't too much of a problem. Now, obviously, you know, what's happening with energy markets, that is a big problem. But there is no U.S. company that really has any substantial, meaningful business in Russia. I mean, there might be a few, but 
you know, even you can say, you know, a company like Boeing, which is the biggest exporter in the United States, they, you know, they really don't sell much to Russia. Um, they have a few engineers that work there, whatever. It's not negligible, but it's it's not it's not that significant. China is a completely whole different ball game. So if they were to, you know, invade Taiwan or, or whatever, you know, there's there's just all these heightened tensions um, between the U.S. and China right now. So for some reason, uh, that economic linkage was broken or severed in any way that would completely, you know, destroy maybe too strong of a word, but it would very seriously challenge the business models of a lot of very important U.S. companies. So Apple is the one that comes to mind the most, uh, the, you know, comes, comes to mind first, uh, you know, this, they just depend on China, not ju- on both ends, you know, just for selling their products and also for producing their products. And then you have, you know, a company like Walmart, which same thing, they sell a lot in China. They're very big, big there. Um, but they also, you know, go go to a Walmart and look at any item on the store shelves and you'll see made in China. It's, it's been very much on uh, imports from China. Uh, and yeah, Boeing, um, I think, you know, 20% of Boeing's wide body airplane sales were, were in China, you know, before the pandemic. So that becomes a major, major, major challenge for the yes. US economy if there's any kind of rupture there. Um, so, yeah, I guess I guess we I kind of danced around a few things. You asked me a broader question of uh, the global economy, but uh, keep your eye on China. That's obviously kind of the, you know, the, the big elephant and uh the, you know, I'll, I'll just say one more thing about the global economy on sort of a, of a darker note, um, not something that'll particularly hurt the U.S. economy, but with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, uh, unfortunately, the, there's really little question that a lot of developing countries, poorer countries, are going to be facing serious famine. Um, mm-hmm. They... There's just too much important food production from those pla- from that part of the world. That's that's not going to be there anymore um, for for at least the next you know few months. So uh, not not to you know <laughs> end on a, end this section here on a dark note, but uh, but it is something to to recognize that uh, a lot a lot of suffering because of you know what's happened what what, what Russia has been doing. Uh, yes, yeah, I mean uh, uh, you know. The most primary of, uh, of, of of basic goods is uh, is food and agriculture, and yeah, it's the bread ba- bread basket of, of the world, um, or certainly a lot of lot of the world. Um, yes, that uh, well, let, I, I guess we have to hope that 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 conflict um, can resolve quickly, and you know, all the all the lost production can uh, can get back on track, and and in the interim, because we have. You know, we have advanced sight of this happening. Um, you know, the, the the world can kind of rally and, and try and avoid as much suffering as possible. Um, so let, let's kind of take a, a, a leap back into the US now, back to um, the earnings season that we're going through, companies reporting results. This, this, this week, we look at a couple of different industries. Um, uh, one is uh, the oil and gas, which we'll, we'll touch on shortly. But I think the other company, fascinating uh, company, you've mentioned it already, which is Boeing, um, largest exporter um, in, in the US by, by, by value. Um, bit of a troubled time over the last few years. What, what, what were they saying in their earnings report uh, this week? 
Yeah, the Boeing um, did, as an aside, they made a little bit of news by moving their headquarters from Chicago to Northern Virginia, just outside uh, Washington, D.C. That's where um, Northern Virginia, that's that's where a lot of the defense contractors are based, the big ones. So uh, they want to be close to that and close to the political center of the country. Um, but so they, but, they're going to move their headquarters every every twenty years or so. <laughs> right. Well, they exactly they moved about two decades ago to Chicago from Seattle. Now it's it's not um, from what I understand it's not that many jobs. It's just top level executives, uh, kind of the you know the upper the upper level. But most of you know Boeing is still very much a Seattle company. That's where most of of the activity happens. Um, they do build planes now in South Carolina, the the, the Dreamliners, which is their you know that's. They're overseas. That's for uh, you know inter- intercontinental travel. That's that's um, they built some some of them in Seattle and some of them in uh, in South Carolina now. And uh, I should also say a lot of the parts come from all over the world: Japan, Italy, uh, Wichita, Kansas. And so that's um, it is it is a very kind of global product at a time, incidentally, when globalization is in retreat. That's uh, another story. Uh, but yeah, Boeing and their earnings call. So so Boeing is. Um, is a rare big American company that didn't do very well during the pandemic, which sounds a little bit strange because there was a pand- pandemic. <laughs> you think there mm. wouldn't be a lot of uh, doing well, but but actually mo- most of corporate America actually did very well. Um, even, you know, you'd be surprised, even companies that own restaurants, um, they, they may have had, you know, a quarter or two of difficulties, but but even they managed to get by, you know, with federal relief and, you know, McDonald's did great by people, you know, driving through and home delivery and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Boeing is a real exception in that sense where they just struggled mightily and they continue to struggle mightily. And some of it is simply because the, you know, the market for aircraft remains pretty slow, but that has picked up. It's, it's actually not that bad. The in some ways, the bigger problem for Boeing is that they just can't get their orders fulfilled. They can't produce what people are buying. So they're having all sorts of issues um, delivering their 787, which I just mentioned, the Dreamliner is the nickname for that plane. Um, They have another kind of even bigger plane, um, the 777, the latest version of that, which is um, never, you know, kind of a... (laughs) has been selling very poorly, but in addition to that, there's been a lot of delays. Um, and they've had some issues with their sort of flagship, uh, you know, the, the sort of, uh, what do you call it? It's the 737, but that would be what you might call their, um, you know, their, their, their staple product. That's the one that's, yes. uh, you know, that, that pretty much, you know, you can find that all over the world. So that's, um, there's been all sorts of you know, issues with production. So Boeing is, uh, yeah, they've, they've got, they've got problems. I mean, people were asking, I listened to their earnings calls and people are asking like literally questions about, you know, cash balances. Are they going to have enough cash? Are they gonna... And they got a big, wow. Wow. yeah, they got a big bailout during the, um, you know, right after COVID hit. So they would, they would have been out of cash. If it wasn't for federal help. Um, you don't think the federal government would ever let them, let them fold. Uh, now they, you know, I, I, the financial executives on the call reassured that, yeah, look, cash is not an issue or, you know, our balance may have dipped here, but we're, you know, we're going to, uh, there, there are seasonal factors, whatever, things are going to be better. 
Um, however, if you have to even talk about issues like that, it's usually not a good sign. Yeah, uh, absolutely alarming. I, I and and what's interesting though about the the, the predicament or their story is, I mean, commercial um, plane building is essentially a duopoly internationally. Airbus <laughs> seem to be doing okay. Um, I don't believe they have those kind of same kind of production issues. In fact, I've heard that they're kind of ramping up production. Um, so, you know, it's not that it's a market problem. It sounds like it's, uh, you know, it's their own production. Um, how, I mean, what, what are the issues? Is this, this is just, just back to supply chain or is it just to do with how they do business? Yeah, I think, I think it's uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I think there's definitely supply chain issues right now, but, but as you mentioned, I mean, Airbus doesn't seem to be having as much of a problem with that. Uh, I think what happened is, so Boeing unfortunately had uh, two um, two of their 737 Maxes. Um, that's you know the latest 737 version that they're selling. Uh, two of them crashed back in a couple of years ago, and that really created just a new level of scrutiny, both internally within the company and also by regulators, the FAA, and whatnot. So I think there's just maybe can't say this for sure, but there, but you know there just may be kind of that heightened level of, uh, you know, let's double, triple, triple, quadruple check everything. Um, I don't, don't know the specific issue with the 787 right now, why that's, why that's being delayed. Um, but I suspect it's, you know, something tied to what I just said. Uh, you know, just back, back on the market side, I, I do think Boeing has, <laughs> I think they have some sleepless nights about what's happening in China because China was a really, really, really a very important part of their business for, for a long time. Um, another important uh, customer for, for Boeing for many years were these airlines in, in the Middle East, the Gulf carriers, we call them, Emirates most prominently, and Qatar Airways. They were, uh, you know, there was a time when these carriers would just, you know, they, they basically show up and buy everything, everything Boeing had to yes. offer. You know, you want my most expensive, biggest and most expensive plane with all the bells and whistles? Yeah, we'll take 150 of them. And those days are gone. Uh, and I don't think they're ever coming back. So, you know, what's the long-term future of Boeing? Well, it is still a duopoly in an industry that, you know, should, when it gets back to normal, if globalization doesn't, you know, reverse to, uh, you know, doesn't reverse too um, drastically, Aviation air travel should be a market that has a you know bright bright future in terms of growth. So you know maybe 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 Boeing winds up okay, but but there yeah it's it's I think the 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 golden years of like you know 2011, 2012, 2013 they're they're gone. Yeah, well, but there is another element of Boeing which I wanted to ask you about, and that is of course you know it's not all about commercial aviation. There's a large defense part of what they do, and. In some ways, the world has suddenly, I think, um, created a, a greater demand for defense that wasn't there before. So is that something that they see as an area that, that kind of will help them out of the hole on the commercial aviation side? Well, surely. And that probably played a part in why they're moving to Northern Virginia, where all the defense companies are. Maybe that's, they see that becoming a bigger part of their business. Um, also, uh, cargo side of even the, on the back on the commercial uh, in the commercial mm. business, ca cargo is doing well, but but both defense and cargo airplanes are a significantly smaller percentage of Boeing's business than passenger jets. So 
Right. So yes, okay. important, but um, but it's not going to make up for you know if you're if Boeing is not selling seven three sevens, seven eight sevens, and seven seven sevens, then it's in trouble. Yes. No yes. matter what else okay. it's selling. <laughs> well, so I guess one one another one that kind of you know it's a story story to watch um, and, and where that goes. Right. So. I really, I think to kind of wrap wrap things up for today, I I wanted to combine two two stories in one that we cover in Econ Weekly. One is the 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 location that we focus on this week, which is Lake Charles in in Louisiana on the Gulf Coast, um, and it is so deeply entwined with the particular industry sector. Um, it's worth talking about the company we focused on as well um, this week. So alongside Boeing, we had a deeper feature on, uh, now am I pronouncing this right, Chenier? Um, you can correct me there. And, you know, tell us a little bit about Lake Charles and the whole kind of, you know, LNG and oil and gas kind of um, sector. Yeah, Lake Charles is a fascinating story. I, I had um, really little uh, familiarity with it before I, you know, kind of dug in and dug into it this week and talked to talk to some people down there. Um, it's a place that, uh, you know, that, you know, picture swamps and, and forests back, you know, a century ago. Um, it wasn't a place there was where there was a whole lot going on until um, they actually, the, the very first industry, what really kind of got it going was, uh, was forestry. So Louisiana does have a lot of, um, uh, you know, lumber, a big lumber industry. It, it, it did a long time ago. It still does today. And interesting um, for those, if you're interested in history, um, after the Civil War, the whole South just needed a lot of rebuilding. And a lot of the, the lumber and the wood that, that was required uh, came from Louisiana. And Lake Charles um, had some of those lumber mills and, and provided some of that. Um, but we're really sort of, things really started getting interesting when they discovered oil down there along the Gulf. It's about, I think, 30 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it's not right on the coast, but there's a, uh, there's a channel, a ship channel that actually can take you down to the Gulf. So you have the oil industry that, uh, that really, you know, created a lot of wealth. And since then they've actually added, um, casinos. So there's quite a substantial tourism industry in Lake Charles as well. A lot of people come by from Houston, come from Houston, which is only two hours away. Um, there's also, and even as, you know, some aviation there because they used to have an old military airport that it converted into a uh, sort of some facilities for aircraft painting and aircraft maintenance. Um, there's a big, a very big army base uh, a couple hours to the north as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not just an oil and gas, um, oil and gas sector, but where things really get interesting is the so so the the oil and gas sector has um, and the petrochemicals I should say which is sort of tied into basically refine basically refining crude oil and other things whether it be chemicals or plastics or or gas we'll get to the gas in a minute but um, that whole sector received just an enormous amount of investment of capital investment during the really from 2013 to about 2018. I mean, we're talking, I think the number topped a hundred billion dollars. I mean, just sums that are unthinkable. And the economic growth, um, as you might expect with all that investment, was 
way above uh, the national average for, for many years. And what happened in around 2000 and, uh, well, 2005, before a lot of these investments started, there's this very big hurricane that went through, Hurricane Rita. And then in 2020, just everything you can possibly think of went wrong in Lake Charles. So you had, first of all, COVID, which the whole world experienced, that was bad for everybody. But it was particularly bad for Lake Charles because you have this big energy sector, which remember oil prices turned negative right after COVID had. I mean, the energy sector was one of the worst hit of all. And the tourist sector was terribly hit. So all those people at those casinos got laid off. Mm-hmm. On top of that, just a couple of months after COVID started, there was a huge hurricane that just decimated the um, just the whole region there. And then a couple of weeks later, six weeks later, another hurricane came through. And the estimates are that half of the entire city's housing stock or the region's housing stock was, was in some way damaged, either just destroyed or damaged. Uh, so you had this weird situation where Lake Charles in the past, basically in the year to, to July of the 12 months of July of 2021, so really overlapping with the pandemic, Lake Charles was the fastest shrinking metro population in the United States. They were just losing population. Yet at the same time, they were receiving all this enormous investment. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, you know. It's a fascinating, yeah, fascinating. It's interesting, uh, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So now, now this story gets even more interesting because now um, 20, late 2021, 2022 rolls along and the energy market reverses. Now it's booming like no other. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's a particular, particular form of energy called natural gas that is, has a special role in Lake Charles. And it's called liquefied natural gas. So liquefied natural gas is where they actually, you know, gases, they, they take it out of the ground uh, through, you know, whatever in, in Texas or wherever. And they pipe it to these export facilities um, where they, where they back, they actually turn the gas into liquid. They load it onto ships in Lake Charles and they send it all around the world. And originally companies like Chenier, which you mentioned, they were the pioneer in this. They originally created liquefied natural gas or LNG facilities for imports because the U S thought it was going to have a gas shortage. This was in the mid two thousands. Suddenly sort of around 2008, 2009 into the early 2010s, you have this fracking boom, which turns the U.S. shortage of natural gas into a massive surplus of natural gas. So, so they went in and Chenier's, among others, went to these facilities and they converted them from being import terminals to export terminals. Now, fast forward to this spring, Russia invades Ukraine. Europe is desperate for gas. So LNG exported natural gas is the hottest commodity in energy. I mean, you just, just Google it, Google LNG, and you'll see references to it anywhere. Believe me, I spent a lot of time this quarter listening to energy company earnings calls and LNG, 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 that's all you hear. And Lake Charles, Louisiana is the global capital for LNG. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the epicenter. Quite a story. Wow. 
<laughs> quite a story. Yeah. So 2022 should be a good year. Now, as you can see from everything I said, this is a very ecologically fragile place. It's also a place with a lot of income equality. Uh, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's certainly not a rich place despite all those, those million. Well, it's um, also still rebuilding, I would imagine, after the- It's, the, it's the still rebuilding. And so they still don't have enough houses. And of course, the reason why they can't build so fast is because there's a labor shortage, which goes back to one of the very first, first things we were talking about in this conversation. So there's a real shortage of uh, not just labor, but also materials to build houses. So a lot of the people are still living in quote unquote exile. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still to be determined, you know, with how many actually come back. But, but the jobs are there. Now, now I just want to say one more thing that's uh, important about the energy sector and its role in the economy. The energy sector requires a lot of capital, but it doesn't require a lot of labor. So it's what you, what you tend to see is you'll see like, you know, billions in upfront investment. And you'll also see a lot of construction jobs that are temporary. But then, you know, to run an LNG facility just doesn't require that, that many people. So it's kind of the opposite of leisure and hospitality, which doesn't require a lot of capital. You know, you could set up a restaurant or whatever pretty, pretty quickly, but, but it's, you know, but it employs a lot of people. It's very labor intensive. So that's one issue that Lake Charles is, you know, as the as it tries to get the economy back, that it's that it's dealing with. Um, still, after all everything I said, amazingly, the economy in Lake Charles today is still smaller than it was before Hurricane Rita in two thousand and five. So you can see just the roller coaster going on. Yeah, I was going to say the people that run economic development there must be suffering from whiplash. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you can hear it when you talk to them, but no, they're very positive. I mean, just with just, you know, if, if, if you're interested, you can Google LNG Lake Charles and you'll see they just, you know, just last week there were, you know, all sorts of new contracts signed for this and that um, it's, you know, they, they're really bullish that uh, that, that LNG is really going to you know, bring in a lot of money. And also the fact that, you know, tourism right now is coming back, you know, the casinos are open, people are coming back. Um, and again, a lot of those people, that come to the casinos are from Houston, which is, um, you know, just, just right now the probably the hottest giant economy, you know, of all the, of all the top 10 economies in the U S Metro mm-hmm. Houston's probably the, uh, the one that's booming the most because of what's happening in the energy sector. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of positivity there, but also, you know, there's, there's been a lot of hardship as well. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. F- fascinating. Just, just, just absolutely goes to show that uh, you really don't know a place until you kind of del- delve in a little more. Um, uh, it's probably my, my favorite part of the, the entire Econ Weekly um, edition every week is, the, is, is learning more about the U.S. and some of the towns and regions that we cover. Yeah, uh, that's my favorite part to write, too. I know it is so interesting to, to, to learn about all these places. Okay, but well, we put it near the end. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh yeah, you, so, uh, yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta listen for until they get to the good stuff. Get to the good, yes. Uh, so Jay, I think uh, we probably ought to wrap it up now. It's been a bump, bumper week of, of news, um, and uh, I, um, I'm not sure what next week's going to look like. What's on the outlook? Should be, should be a little quieter, but uh, there are some inflation numbers that are coming out that are, are, everyone will be watching. And we're still in earnings season, so there'll be, uh, you know, some more, more companies reporting as well. 
Uh, okay, well, sounds good. Well, I look forward to kind of uh, re talking about that with you next week. Um, in the meantime, I'll um, I'll thank everybody for for signing in and and, and listening. Um, I'll repeat again that if anybody has any any comments or suggestions for us for either the podcast or or Econ Weekly itself, um, please don't hesitate to to get in touch. And Jay, I'll let you say how people can can do that. Yep, as always, uh, econweekly.substack.com, and my email is j at econweekly.biz. Okay, all right, Jay, well, listen, it was good talking to you again, and have a great week. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, and thanks for listening, everyone. Okay, bye, everyone.